Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Fuck God, I'm writing the tetanus Bible. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to another week of Dungeon Deep Dive, your favourite fantasy world building podcast. It better be, I hurt my shoulder dancing to the music at the beginning. Um, So if you are brand new, if this is your first episode, God help you. But what we do is every week we take a different element of a fantasy world and we deconstruct it, have a look at some of the history, things about it and how you can implement it in your world to make it interesting. Uh, This isn't all about just being historically accurate. This is about making interesting worlds that if you just take a look into any random thing, you could be able to craft a story hook. Um, So today we are once again recording in Brisbane in the Minjin land of the Turrbal and Yagara people. This is the lands that that has been stolen from the traditional custodians and we'd like to pay respects to Indigenous elders past, present and future. Um, If you do want to join the conversation, uh, if you do want to bring those perspectives to the table, we would love to hear from you. And um, once again, sovereignty was never ceded. These have always been lands of of storytelling and of teaching and learning, and we'd like to continue in that tradition. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So this week, we're talking about the bloody plague. The bloody plague. Interestingly, researching this, I thought that there'd been like different plagues, but it's just kind of like we all kind of look at them all as kind of the same thing. Yeah, look, plagues as a concept are a thing, but realistically, it's always about the Black Death. Mm, It's been like multiple events of the disease that was the Black Death. I don't know if they were all called the Black Death. Uh, No, they weren't called the Black Death all the time. That was just the big plague, right? It is mostly linked back to the one bacterium, which is uh, Yersinia pestis. Mm. Um, So this is just that one... um, So Yersinia pestis is seen to be the common root of a bunch of different outbreaks. Um, In fact, literally yesterday, two people in China were confirmed to be suffering from Yersinia pestis. Oh, yeah. Uh, People get Yersinia pestis every year. And even with modern medical treatment, the fatality rate is fucking through the roof. Uh, I mean, through the roof for modern medicine, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not high because we have antibiotics. Yeah, but but it's fatality like, rates of like 20% are high these days. Yeah, for something that comes from... for When we're so used to dealing with like... The sorts of infections that we are used to dealing with. I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's something that's that common, that also easy recently, to spread. Recently, antibiotic resistant Yersinia pestis was discovered. Oh dear God! Really? Are yes. you serious? I mean, it was discovered, and it's never been seen in a clinical patient. But it's just that that is now a possibility. 
Yes, oh, you can get no. antibiotic-resistant Black Death soon. I'm pretty sure... In stores near you. I'm pretty sure I read, maybe you're going to talk about this, but I'm pretty sure I read that if you don't get treatment, the fatality's like 90%. Yeah, without treatment, it's very high. You're just going to die. Yep. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is less the Black Death, because realistically, you don't just want to bring the Black Death. That's not very interesting. I'm going to talk more about diseases that spread very quickly and effectively. So, essentially, what I need to do to set the scene for this is talk about uh, modes of transmission. This is different ways that the disease can get passed from one person to another. Mm-hmm. Now, it's important to point out that diseases come in a couple of different forms. Uh, the main three that you will see are bacteria. Uh, so, those are just little single-celled organi- organisms. They kind of carried by things... They, de- they evolve pretty quickly, but they develop mostly carried by other things. They're not so much a living creature as a single-celled organism. Yeah. Um, then you have viruses. Now, viruses actually infect cells. They infect cells and live in them, whereas bacteria will just float around in your system. So different uh, ideas of bacteria, things like Yersinia pestis, or um, E. coli, uh, Salmonella, they are all bacteria. When you look at viruses, that's things like your um, common colds, like your rhinovirus, your flu. Uh, When you get into more serious ones like Ebola, they are viruses. And then you get into parasites. Parasites are other organisms that live off a, a host. So they're things like ticks, fleas on the larger scale, all the way down to prion diseases, so mad cow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are the main for- forms that diseases take. Well, there's also the fungal infections. I don't think that's especially relevant to this episode. No. But, but mushrooms do some nasty stuff too. Yeah. They're less easily transmissible diseases. They're not going to show up as plagues so much, but... I don't that- know. Maybe you got mad magic magic plague mushrooms that have mushrooms in your lungs and you breathe out spores. That'd be cool as hell. That'd be cool as hell. I mean, it would suck big dicks to have for <laughs> sure, but it'd be really cool as like flavor text. That would suck big mushroom dicks. <laughs> <laughs> we wonder why we cap at about a thousand subscribers. This is why. <laughs> Um, so. Look, we just want the diehards. We just want the diehard mushroom dick fans. <laughs> Those are the other people I want. So there are different modes of transmission. Um, <laughs> these can really be broken into two categories. The most common is direct transmission. So this is just different ways that you can pass it directly from one host to another. Like when you give your niece the plague for Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... One of the most common that you'll see is droplet contact. This is uh, mostly when a when a disease can survive only for a very short time outside of a host. It's transmitted in droplets of fluid that are transmitted through coughing, sneezing, that sort of stuff. Um, so notable examples of this are tuberculosis and the common cold. Um, basically, they are transmitted purely through fluid contact in fine droplet form. Um, so sneezing and coughing are how you're going to notice these. Um, and basically that just means, yeah, it's going to... I, I'm going to talk about a little bit what that means for the disease as it presents later on, but it just means that the particles that it can survive in have to be very short-lived. It's got to reach another person quickly to be primarily droplet contact. Yeah. Um, 
then it's also it's also not super common. And I know you said you weren't talking specifically about the Black Death, mm. but just because it it mostly manifested on like the skin and stuff, it's not often getting into your lungs and things like that. Yeah, exactly. This wasn't the Black Death. Yeah. Um. So then there's direct physical contact. Uh, this is usually contact of mucosal surfaces um, or fluid contact. Uh, it's mostly um, things like kissing and sexual contact. This is stuff like herpes and syphilis that mostly happens um, when you are... And um, actually, another one that I put somewhere here is glandular fever. Oh, yeah. Glandular I had fever glandular fever when I was a kid. I had it when I was 18. Did you get it from did you, did you get it from kissing? No, I didn't. Well, how'd you get it then? I gave it through kissing. Wait, how'd you get it then? I got it through uh, I studied in the same like we basically lived in the same building for 5 days a week. Just the same thousand students. So even Oof, just... Yeah, anyone in that room getting got glandular fever. Everyone in that room's got glandular fever. <laughs> yeah, basically like one person gets sick. The whole building gets sick. Yeah, shit. Um, anyway, so then there's yeah direct physical contact. That's usually going to be kissing or sexual contact. Um, if you can get it from shaking hands with somebody who's like coughed on their hands or who's spat on their hands, it's probably through what's called indirect physical contact, which is you can transmit it or pick it up by touching contaminated surfaces. Um, which isn't very common with diseases. No, this is mostly going to be a secondary form of transmission. Mm. Um, so things like the common cold, they can actually survive for a long time on surfaces. Rhinovirus tends to survive for a fair while. That being said, if you wash your hands, it's pretty easy not to catch these things. Yeah, it's pretty much just like, if you're getting something on your hands, the only way it's going to get into your body is if you then, like, put it all over your food. Or, like, lick your hands. Which, like, if anyone's licking their hands after... After they've sh- shook someone's hand and before they've washed their hands, then you deserve to die from the plague. I don't know what to tell you. That's fucked. Um, but this quite possibly is how the Black Death was contracted. Through, um, through indirect physical contact. It's, it's bacteria touching on and your hands, touching which and gets your food, which you eat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, because I mean, I was listening to a thing about it earlier. I think it was um, the guy who first suggested that you should like in like the 1400s or something like so some some like absurdly late time in history mm. first suggested that you should wash your hands before delivering babies because obviously and he had like data on his side and stuff. Mm. They were so resistant to that, even though it was like pretty late into, like, modern medicine-y eras. Yeah. Uh, he was so uh, hated for that that he was put to an, put in an asylum when he was 47 for the rest of his life until he died of sepsis. Yeah. It actually took like, a lot of time for these sorts of theories to be picked up. Yeah, people um, really hated washing their hands. Like, this is doctors delivering babies. Yeah. Um. So, similar to indirect physical contact uh, is airborne transmission. Uh, So, you hear airborne transmission uh, in a lot of, like, movies like Contagion and Pathogen and um, those sorts of ones that are almost always identical and almost always either a zombie plague or some form of Ebola. Um, There was The Happening. The Happening was was airborne and that wasn't Ebola. 
What was it then? Do, have you not seen The Happening? No, I haven't. Oh, it's a really bad movie starring Mark Wahlberg where it's basically just like the grass, I guess, decided to kill everyone. Literally, it's like a conscious decision from nature to wipe out humanity. Wow. So they just come up with... So the, the nature invents a disease that makes people kill themselves. We'll do and a special like, bonus like, episode where we review uh, The Happening. <laughs> it's really dumb. Someone like jumps in a lion enclosure and stuff. It's just like shock. It's just like shock gore the entire time. And Fair. like Mark Wahlberg's bad acting. It's, it's a real experience. Mark Wahlberg at us. <laughs> There's a really funny scene where Mark Wahlberg walks into a house in the middle of this giant grassy field. And it's like, why are you out here, first of all? It's like there's grass everywhere, idiots. So they walk into this house and there's like a plastic plant in the corner and everyone loses their shit because they finally get inside and they're like screaming over this plant. Someone's like, it's, it's, it's plastic, it's fine. And like, that's the whole scene. It's really dumb. <laughs> it's a really bad movie. Wow. It's um, like a key tension in the film. Anyway, airborne transmission. <laughs> um, particles, they, these are particles that will survive in the air for long periods of time. Um, likely, if it is airborne, it's probably going to overlap with droplet and direct physical contacts. Mm. So, and, um, and indirect or direct physical contact. It's going to yeah, be partially fluid-borne. Because the reason it is airborne for the most part... when, it when it starts in comes, droplets. Yeah, when, it comes from, when, it's, when it's airborne from people, it's because the disease has somehow gotten into your respiratory system yeah. and is in the like little droplets of saliva that you breathe out. So this is just going to be a slightly longer-living version of a droplet contact in most cases. But it is actually things like, surprisingly, chickenpox, smallpox, tuberculosis... And anthrax. Fuck yeah. I always forget about anthrax. Yeah, I always forget that anthrax is just like a disease. I assume it's a poison all the time. But yeah, it's a disease and it's airborne. It's a bioweapon. It's like yeah. really fucked. Um, anyway, so that's airborne transmission. And then here is arguably the most fucked, but some of the most common diseases of pre-industrial times uh, is fecal oral. This is mostly Ha-ha, contaminated. The fecal oral route. What a good. Don't finish that thought. Okay, um, <laughs> it's probably for the best. The mostly contaminated water. Yes, yeah, so this is mostly contaminated water supplies or people just not washing tasty their hands. transmission. That's what I was looking for. Tasty. Oh, hate it. <laughs> hate it. Um, something, something. Ass to mouth. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, now I'm just thinking about Human Centipede. Um, anyway, so... It's this a fun is, movie. This is either um, contaminated water supplies or not washing your hands before you eat. Um, the biggest ones of these are dysentery and typhoid. Um, this is basically shit got in the water, people drank the water, people shat. Oh, God. Yeah. Did, you, did, did I ever tell you about how they... I think it was typhoid how they discovered that typhoid was coming from, like, contaminated water sources because of human feces? No. It was just because, like, there was an outbreak of typhoid in London. I, I think it was typhoid. Oh, oh, it might have been dysentery. This was dysentery, and I remember reading this. This is one of the early cases for um, the for the contamination, for the actual um, 
germ theory. Yeah, it's, this is one of the first examples of epidemiology. Yeah. Um, it was like, this was the first guy to like look at outbreaks and be like, well, if we look at them on a map, we can probably work out where they came from. Um, mm. And it was literally just like someone was washing, some, someone's baby had dysentery and she was washing all the dysentery nappies in yeah. the local well. And basically, like, it was... One she was solely responsible for the dysentery outbreak. It was outbreak. one specific well in London, and it was it was quarantined really quickly. These these cases, um, but as only after he said, "Hey, can you shut down this particular well so I can test this hypothesis?" And the medical board was kind of like, "Yeah, I suppose, but." Prove it, yeah, because nobody had, nobody had ever done that before. And it turns out, outside of the in that one block that's that well served, other people that got served by that particular, uh, the other people that got dysentery and that outbreak included a school. Oh, it's like, yeah, it was like a school or a university, like college that they had run past that well and they'd drunk out of it in that time. There was one woman who pati- who preferred the taste of the water from that well and had her maid. Oh, yeah, so she travelled, she, like, got it from across town. Yeah. She, she like, just got dysentery water. It was her choice. Yeah. Wild. Um. Yeah, and it was just, they discovered that that well in particular was being infected, and that's early germ theory. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's where it, that's kind of where it comes from. Anyway, where that all leads to is... One of the big things when it comes to plagues, it's a concept called optimal virulence. And what Ooh. that what that means is oh, where yeah. the symptoms and loss of fitness in the host contribute to the optimal circumstances for transmission. So when the symptoms and oh. the way that it hurts a host are perfect for it to either reproduce the most or spread the most. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So it's just kind of like the disease is not actively attacking you. It's attacking you for its own end. You're a means to an end. Yeah, you're a means to an end. So I've got three examples here. The Firstly, the common cold. This is based on droplet contact. Uh, and if it caused the victim to become just bedridden or immediately drop dead, they're never going to sneeze. They're not going to sneeze on people. Mm. So instead, it doesn't kill you and it doesn't make you very weak for a fair while. So you walk around town sneezing on people and with less severe symptoms. But that means more hosts walk around... Get, Sneezing and getting sneezed on. It's like if anyone's ever played like a Plague Inc. or Pandemic or whatever. It's a perfect example yeah. of optimal virulence. You know how eventually you get to a point where you're like, man, I'm, I keep losing the game. I have to start off with like less severe symptoms and just spread. Like you have to remember that these diseases are living things and they may not know much. They can't read a book. But the one thing that these diseases know is how to be really good diseases. And I'll get to like the three different ways that it's sort of hypothesized that they grow into these things in a second. Ooh. Um, so then another example is things like dengue fever. Uh, this is through... Oh, sorry. I missed a whole other thing. The other route of transmission is indirect transmission. This is by two things. Vector transmission. So that's where another creature carries a disease. Perfect example, mosquitoes and malaria um, is where mosquitoes will bite you, get your blood, hold the disease from the blood, and then they will bite the next person and transfer the disease. Okay. Not to be like... a pedant or anything, but this episode is called Plagues. Surely the best example of that is Yersinia pestis. And second second example, Yersinia pestis. Fleas on rats uh, that would bite people, get the disease, jump off, bite the next person, infect them. Well, don't I look like a fool? Um, and the second one is intermediate hosts. This is where 
there's actually a second host actually contracts the disease. So this is um, things like uh, tapeworms that hide in uncooked ho- uncooked pork or like poorly cooked pork, poorly cooked pork, um, um, or things like prion diseases that come from eating brains. Toxoplasmosis is Toxoplasmosis also that perfect uh, because that comes. I think that originates. It, it has like a whole cycle where it goes from like it's like ants get eaten by small animals, which then get hmm. eaten by cats, which then it like spreads through. Exactly. In fact, I actually read recently that if you've ever like smelled a cat. And to be like, and you're like, man, cat smells, you know how sometimes cats just like smell s- like cats. You think that cats would smell gross, but they don't. Mm. That's because you have toxo all through your brain. See brain worms talking, bud. There you go. Because it comes from the, the cat poo. So they want you to eat all the cat poo. Right. And probably the cat too, honestly. <laughs> they probably want you to eat the cat. Probably. Um, but yeah, that's, that's intermediate host is when something else contracts the disease and then gives it back to you. Um, that's most of us, by the way. Pretty much everyone alive has toxoplasmosis in there, sitting, just sitting, waiting in their brains. Absolutely wild. Um, it's got some brain worms. It's good shit. So, yeah, back on optimal virulence, things like dengue fever. Um, mosquitoes swarm better if someone's easily trackable and they don't move around. So, <laughs> dengue fever makes you bedridden and makes you smell to mosquitoes. Makes oh. you really warm so they can track you. Wait, um, so mosquitoes would want that? Oh, the disease wants that. The disease, the disease wants, wants you that. to make it so you're more attractive to mosquitoes. Exactly. So the disease makes you attractive to mosquitoes, which means mosquitoes come to you. Then they go by someone else, makes them bedridden and easy to track, so more mosquitoes go to them, uh, and it continues. Hmm. And that's pretty similar for malaria as well. Uh, um, did you know that Townsville, where I'm from, is the uh, capital of this country in dengue fever, and it is also the the place that Ross River fever, the other thing that is like dengue, this pretty much yeah, just pretty dengue, much. Uh, is dengue named with after. more long lasting effects. Yeah, and you're sick for longer, I think, as well. It just causes. I think you're like bedridden for a couple of months as opposed to like a three weeks with dengue. Yeah, and it just causes chronic pain essentially. Mm. You have to look. You have to know this stuff if you live in Townsville because yeah. literally, like the river that I would cross to get from... Was the Ross River? To get, yeah, it would cro- <laughs> I would go from my house in Douglas to get to, like, the shopping centre, and I would go over the Nathan Street Bridge over Ross River, where Ross River fever comes from. Yep. <laughs> it's a um, disgusting city. And then here... No, no, no shade to anyone that lives there. Uh, like, I, I feel your pain. Fair. Um, and then the last idea I've got for optimal virulence is the Ebola virus, uh, otherwise known as hemorrhagic fever. And basically, it is through fluid contact, so non-airborne fluid contact. God, Ebola's so fucked. Um, And that means as much blood, saliva, mucus, vomit, and feces that it can get out, the better. Um, It just wants you to get all of those things out of your body onto other people. And so that's through your eyes, your mouth, your nose. Um, Contagion only occurs when you're symptomatic. So it wants you to make you as sick as possible, as soon as possible, and then... That means medical professionals... Oh, yeah. And this is why Ebola has never really been widespread, despite the widespread panic, is because it, you're not going to have people walking around can, being contagious. It's mostly going to be contagious only to close friends, family, and medical workers. Yeah. And so it only really... There's only really outbreaks where there's poor medical quarantine. Because you really have to get that, like... You contaminated have have, bodily fluid in you, or it's and it, yeah, you've got to have contaminated bodily fluid get either in your res- respiratory system or to some other like mucosal orifice, like your eyes, your mouth, uh, or your genitals. I did just remember though, uh, the reason I know so many weird things about diseases is uh, sh- 
I get. Is it weird to plug a podcast that's way bigger than ours? I don't huh? know. Uh, Sawbones. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I've heard of Sawbones. Uh, Justin McElroy and his wife, Dr. Sydney McElroy. Okay. Uh, it's like a medical history podcast. Um, they did an episode on Ebola, and there is a version of Ebola that has not crossed the barrier from um, primates to humans, which mm. I'm pretty sure we only started getting Ebola because we started trying to like look at and observe primates that had Ebola and started getting sick from it. Um, But there is a form of Ebola in primates that is completely airborne. That's scary. That like a a, a chimp with Ebola breathes in the room and the other chimps get Ebola and it's not gotten to us yet. Uh, So, But the first one had to cross that barrier, didn't it? With that horrifying realisation, I'm going to take us to... Basically, there's three prevailing theories and quite possibly all of them are correct in different places. Um, Three different theories of how diseases develop to become optimally virulent. Um, So the first one's what's called the trade-off hypothesis. Basically, this this argument is that Darwinism, uh, that evolution favours the middle ground. It's the ones that are super deadly, kill the host before they spread. And so they, those strains don't survive. And then the ones that are ineffective, the super mild diseases, they don't cause enough symptoms to spread. And so or they, to be noticed if they do. No, well, and that's the thing. If they get noticed, then they're an effect. If they don't get noticed, but they do infest pe- infect people, that's uh, reasonable. That's actually a good disease, um, like the common cold. That's fair. No, I just mean because we're full of bacteria at any given moment. Like there's plenty that spread fine Mm. that are probably trying to fuck you up and just are really bad at it. Yeah. There are some diseases that probably won't affect you. Uh, Like toxoplasmosis. Like toxoplasmosis. But essentially this says that Darwinism favours those diseases for outbreaks that are symptomatic enough to, to transmit, um, but not symptomatic, not bad enough that they're going to kill you. Um, at least not for a while. Yes. The downfall of this argument is that some diseases just work better if the host dies quick, like Ebola. It, it just works better if you drain the host so quickly and get them to med- medical areas. Oh, yeah, because uh, the quicker you kill them, the quicker they're dying, the faster people are going to congregate around them to try and deal with that, the more people... Mm-hmm. Wow, it's like the disease is almost aware of social dynamics. Exactly. Um, some like... Innate way. So then, then comes the hypo- hypothesis called the short-sighted evolution hypothesis. Basically, traits that increase reproduction or virulence will be the ones that end up coming up first. So Just the ones that let the disease spread faster. Yeah, exactly. The ones that let the disease reproduce will be the ones that are the most prevalent. And then, if they hit a dead end, then they hit a dead end. They die. But if they don't, well, they're already going to be perfectly virulent. So, so then as soon as symptoms start developing, it's exactly it's already spread. So this is why more aggressive strains of diseases are shown in family groups, in crowded situations like refugee camps. When, when transmission can't be avoided, you'll always see more aggressive strains because the th- ones that are selected for are the ones that will reproduce quickly. Because, I mean, if it doesn't have to worry about killing the host before transmitting, it can just kill as many people as it wants. Mm. Concentration um, camps are famous for being absolute vectors of disease, just constantly because you put people in this, like you put malnourished people with uh, no access to sanitation in a really close area. Even one person gets one germ in their body and that's everyone's dead. Yeah, because optimal virulence is the most aggressive strain. Um, 
And so that's that's the short-sighted evolution hypothesis is that the most aggressive strain that can survive will survive. Yeah, I mean, that makes the most sense to me. Um, and then there's coincidental evolution, which is, funnily enough, still correct in some cases. Basically, that some things, just by pure coincidence, happen to be deadly to us. Um, tetanus is a perfect example. It is super, super toxic for no other reason than pure coincidence. It's just chilling. Yeah. Tetanus is not trying to do shit. No, tetanus doesn't... It doesn't gain anything from us dying or getting lockjaw or going mad. Like, it literally just exists because it happened to exist in in the ground and then when we cut ourselves, it got into our system. And we we just really did not get along. Yeah. Tetanus just didn't like us. Tetanus is just like a bad roommate. So that's called coincidental evolution. So essentially, when you get to designing a disease... <gasps> Unless tetanus was responsible for us evolving to this point purely so that we would be killed by tetanus. <gasps> so when you're designing a disease... <laughs> Intelligent design comes from tetanus. <laughs> Fuck God, I'm writing the tetanus Bible. <laughs> Thank you so much to every loyal listener we have. I really appreciate it. Um, so when you're designing your disease and like the symptoms that you get, um, it is important to note that different symptoms mean different things. So where in the body it's taking place. Will okay, mean- Tully. <laughs> Thanks for that. So if you're coughing, it means it's going to be pulmonary. <laughs> it sorry, comes Tully. from your lungs. If you're getting chest pain, that's probably cardiovascular. If it's vomiting, that'll come from your gastrointestinal. Uh, if it's like things like... Things like urinary retention will be urological. Um, So why do certain symptoms appear? It's completely different reasons. Coughing and vomiting, they'll be designed mostly for transmission. Um, If it's like urinary retention, it means... They're just freaks. (laughs) (laughs) UTIs are just freaky. So if if you're having trouble peeing, it means uh, it's trying to keep fluid in your body, which might be important. Um, Oh, interesting. Yeah. If you get burning sensations, it might be a sign that you need water or that it wants you to stay away from certain things. Um, Or it could just be hostile. It's so weird to me that, like, diseases are doing it for a reason. Yeah, well, it's been selected for certain behaviours. So um, if something makes you burn and you take it to water... If it's not meant to go in water, that strain will die. And if it's meant to go in water and it doesn't make you burn and you don't go to water, then it will die. So the ones that will continue to survive are the ones that both burn and need you to go to water. Yeah. Huh. Um, and so what comes with those symptoms uh, is also important. It's an almost like pseudo-sentience at yeah. a certain point. It is, it is pseudo-sentient. Um, it's just natural selection is very clever. Um, I mean, it also just... We don't know enough about sentience. It could just be sentient. Yeah. Um, so if there are also things that come with different symptoms, things like vomiting will not just mean transmission, but it'll mean, it'll mean dehydration. Um, urinary retention may cause bloating. Chest pain will chest pain will cause you to be a lot more sedentary. Um, yeah, it'll affect your behaviours in different ways, which again could be selected for. Could mean nothing, but could be selected for. So what do you need to do when you're designing a disease? Um, I'll run through these, and then I will go through an example from the Dungeon Master's Guide. Ooh. So, first thing, optional but recommended, what is special about the plague? Like, if you just want the Black Death, you can just use the Black Death, but if you want something special, 
figure out what the fun thing about it is. Looking at the Black Death as an example, the thing that you would probably be like if you were inventing the Black Death if it didn't exist, mm. the pubos, the like big lumps that yeah. you get on your skin, the like cysts you get on your skin, that yep. would be like the special feature. Exactly. Um, so then what's the primary mode of transmission? Well, in the case of the Black Death, it is vector transmission. Um, it's through fleas. Mm. Um, and that's how you get it. Um, well, mostly. Mostly, maybe. probably. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Um, then what symptoms does it need for that mode of transmission? So it needs to be attractive to fleas if it's the Black Death, things like that. Um, what conditions does it need for optimal virulence? So for it to be it, for it to be the most aggressive it can possibly be while still infecting a lot of people, what does it need to do? And then finally, what damage does that do to the person? Because diseases leave a lot of damage. <laughs> so looking at disease from the Dungeon Master's Guide and... I will be building this one because I've taken notes on it already. Um, If you look at, in the version I've got, it's page 257. That's just the 5e Dungeon Master's Guide? Yep, 5e Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, You will see Cackle Fever. Ooh. So this disease, it targets humanoids. Weirdly, gnomes are immune. Um, I don't know what what they decided was the reason for that, but gnomes are immune to this. Oh, it's because gnomes are physically incapable of laughter? They don't have the muscles for it. I mean, patently untrue by the uh, the player's handbook description of gnomes, but okay. They're happy. They don't have to laugh. Um, anyway, so while in the grips of the disease, Racist. you um, succumb to fits of mad laughter, uh, giving the disease the common name, which is cackle fever, and its morbid nickname, the shrieks. Ooh, I like that. Symptoms manifest 1d4 hours after infection and include fever and disorientation. The infected creature gains one level of exhaustion that can't be removed until the disease is cured. Any event that causes the infected creature great stress, including combat, taking damage, fear, nightmares, forces them to make a constitution saving throw, and on a failed saving throw, they take a bunch of psychic damage and become incapacitated with mad laughter. Um, the more, If you fail three saving throws in a row, you get indefinite madness. Ooh. Um, that's a hell of a disease. Yes. Um, but if you that's save... That's like a brain infection then. Shit. Yeah. But with each... Um, successive, uh, with each successive successful saving throw, the DC gets lowered, and eventually, when it gets to DC zero, you have just worn through it. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So, what's special about this? Let's go through my steps. Um, the first of it, what's special? It's the laughing fits. That's what makes it special. Yeah. Um, the tracks. So, what's the primary mode of transmission? Well, if you look at the laughing fits, then it's almost certainly airborne and droplet contact. Now, here's something from the DM from the DMG that was in there. If you start your turn within ten feet of someone having a laughing fit, you have to start making saving throws, or you have to make a saving throw or become infected. Um, so that means, yeah, you've got to be within ten feet. It doesn't even need to be right next to them, which makes me believe uh, it's airborne. Um, but it's only during a laughing fit. Sorry, so that means it's not airborne, but it's not contact. It is droplet transmission. Mm. Um, has to be drop, droplet transmission based on that. So what symptoms does it need? Well, it needs to cause laughing fits. So that means it needs euphoria and disorientation uh, accompanied by coughing or something like that. So it increased saliva production. Um, the fever mixed with the euphoria and disorientation probably means brain swelling. So it could cause headaches. 
Um, so what conditions does it need to be optimally virulent? Well, it needs those physical symptoms to be there, but it encourages social contact. So that euphoria is really important. And you need to be social while symptomatic and contagious. So it needs to develop quickly, but not be super physically damaging. It's got to keep you alive. Mm. Um, so it kind of tracks. So that, yeah, the damage that it does, it doesn't have a huge lot of physical symptoms. doesn't mean it isn't dangerous because after three saving throws that you fail, you get an indefinite madness. So it's going to target the brain most likely. It's going to be a little bit like rabies or a prion disease, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, probably closer to rabies just because it is such a fast-acting disease. So uh, I've just got some... Oh, this is literally just notes on the indefinite madness table, which we picked apart in great detail two episodes two episodes ago. Um, we'll have posted on the socials uh, a little bit ago oh, our yeah. updated indefinite madness table, which has some much more realistic depictions of psychoses. You could also see up at our feeds, just while we're talking about things we posted, there should also be, by the time this comes out, the table for our new Wild Magic. Yes, an updated Wild Magic system, which is going to be, um, I, I mean, as of the time of recording, we have worked out a system that is much better than what we figured out on the recording of the episode, <laughs> which, as it turns out, the chances of rolling the worst consequence are... One in one billion. Oh, yeah. Okay, I can see why. I can see why you edited that. So math. I've maybe changed it a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's just because anything with the with a one in one billion chance of rolling it, it's kind of pointless having it there. Let's be honest. Like you may may not even have a billion rolls between all the players making wild magic rolls. Just straight up, you may not get it. Mm, I don't know my. I mean, my parties are usually about 500 mil, so we could probably get one per, se- one per every couple of sessions. Seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> um, I can DM that many people at once. I will say, I think c- kind of an, yeah. an interesting footnote to the cackling fever thing is uh, just a, a bit of historical reference. I remembered while you were talking about it. Uh, have you ever heard of the Dancing Plague? I have heard of the Dancing Plague. The Dancing Plague, for people who are not familiar, was a in July 1518 in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, 400 people took to dancing for days, like just days on end out in the streets yeah. uh, until some of them like died of exhaustion and heart attacks and stuff. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. Um, and the way the authorities had responded to that was originally they were they thought it was a disease. Uh, some people think now it could have been like a contamination of the food supply or like a mass psychiatric illness, which happens sometimes. Um, hmm. I but, mean, Salem witch trials. Yeah, I mean, but, so got poisoning. But they thought that it was at the time a like contagious disease. So what they tried to do uh, was to let people dance it out of their system. They opened up like public spaces for it, so they would have the rooms people could like get it. Sorted. Out of their system. And what it actually, what that caused was it to spread because every, the more people you had dancing in public, the more people started dancing in public. Oh so I just God. think talking about that kind of like pseudo sentience, uh, it could be an interesting thing with like cackling fever. Maybe it's not about the droplets. Maybe it's like an, a, a some level of awareness that if someone's sitting there laughing hysterically, people are going to come over to them. Yeah. People are going to get close to them. 
People are going to want to know what's going on. Like if someone dances in the street for four days until they collapse from exhaustion, people are going to want to know what's going on. You get close enough, you get the disease, you start dancing too. Yeah. And I mean, for players that either aren't aware of this disease or that are very hardcore not metagaming, if they just see one person in the middle of the square cackling, they're probably going to approach them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's what is more interesting than that. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's me. Uh, that's been we're at forty minutes now. Okay. But um, that's how to design a disease. Yeah, that's fun. That's um. There's a lot more like codified kind of steps to it than I would have expected. Yeah, I've I've built a lot of that based on existing things. Like nobody has instructions on how to build a disease. Of course. But fictionally, that's how you justify it from a biological standpoint. There's enough. Yeah. There's enough like consistency that you can really like set out those kind of rules to it. Yeah, you've got to figure out how it's transmitted, what that means for symptoms, what the symptoms do to you, and then again, how does that feed back into how it's transmitted? Yeah. Yeah. Um so I want to talk a little bit about kind of what the plague's like on the ground. And I'm going to talk specifically about the Black Death here. So imagine this. You're just Walking through town one day, and maybe you've seen people with like leprosy around and stuff. It's probably not common because they're probably pretty ostracized. But you're <laughs> you're used to the idea of people with diseases that you can see, and yeah. so maybe you see a couple you see a couple buboes, and you just walk on your day. You're like, oh, that person's sick. That person has a tumor. That person has whatever. Tumors were super common at the time as well because they didn't know anything about anything. So you get a lump on you and you just, I don't fucking it's know. It's just a lump. Maybe we'll cut it off, but you don't have anesthetic, so surgery is really difficult. It's the whole thing. So people are used to having these things. This is just a fact of life in the Middle Ages. You're just yeah. walking down the street. Maybe you notice one one day. In a couple of weeks, you notice a couple more. And within, if you live in the countryside, uh, six to seven, and sorry, about 40 days. If you had a few thousand people, maybe six to seven weeks, similar in the city. Much longer in a metropolis. Could take up to eight weeks before anyone really noticed what was going on. And then, all of a sudden, it hits you. This is a plague. And you know about plagues as well. There's been religious writings about plagues. Plagues are referenced in the Bible and everything. Like, you know what a plague is. but You've never seen it. Another plague is here, and it's too fucking late. That is the most terrifying thing that I think, I mean, I could imagine. It's I mean, essentially, by the, time, by the time that you know the plague is coming, it's too late. You are probably, you've got a, a high, fairly good chance of having been infected. It's done. Yeah, you're just done then. So, the Black Death was a multi-century pandemic through Europe and Asia. Uh, it was, I believe, very centralised in uh, Europe towards the end. Mm. Um, uh, uh, 70,000 people died in the Great Plague of London, 1665 to 1666. Yeah, and I believe it was discovered, it, like there was an outbreak in India in the 8th century. Oh yeah, it's an ancient disease. The first well-documented plague is the uh, Plague of Justinian. Uh, I don't think they know exactly what that was, but that killed 10,000 people a day in Constantinople, which is obviously now Istanbul. Yeah. Um, that being said, in a lot of cases for Yersinia pestis specifically, 
Um, the death toll is ranked at less than 3% of the overall population. Like, you do have to have specific circumstances for a plague to break out. Yeah. Well, yeah, that may have been the the death. The, no, sorry, I, I have here up to 60% of the population succumbed to Yersinia pestis. Yes, but in some of the lowest cases. Oh, in the... Yeah. yeah. Like, sorry. In, in it, some at cases... At its high, it, like halved Europe's population. Yeah, but at its lowest, only 3% of the population died, which is a lot, but for a massive plague, not actually that bad. Mm. And so there are some specific circumstances that you have to have for it to do that. Yeah, yeah. So the kind of typical way that we imagine Yersinia pestis spread, and there's some debate as to whether or not it was Yersinia pestis, the reason we believe it was Yersinia pestis is specifically the references to buboes, uh, obviously constant throughout uh, throughout medieval writings. I mean, I have here, I'll, if I can find it, the, there's like a painting of uh, from the Middle Ages of uh, someone with the plague, and it's literally just like lumps all over their body. Yeah, it's just like these like tumors. It looks like just covered in them, um, and obviously they were like oozing this like awful everything it's just yeah these these pustules weren't nice yeah they weren't clean and just like black spots on you they were open wounds yeah 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 exactly they were like oozing sores because obviously that's how the disease is trying to spread is through these yeah that's these that's fluids. actually the secondary form of transmission mm. um so the so the uh, the disease comes probably from um, from Asia. Uh, it probably came in from like trade ships. The belief is that it came from a type of uh, black rat that com- that is uh, quite common in Asia because the brown rat, which was what was kind of a, I believe originally thought could have been the cause, they looked into it. It doesn't harbor Yersinia pestis. It can't. But this little type of black rat, which there was some debate for a while, but they found some evidence that this was around, like, around Europe during Roman times, during the Middle Ages. Mm. It just wasn't kind of, I guess, as common as we really imagine it was. It wasn't like rats running through the streets. No. Sort of thing. Um, but there definitely were these rats. And the idea is that their fleas carried this bacterium. And then what happens is once you get, like, a centralised population of these rats, which would have become easier and easier as towns started to develop. Especially with sewage systems or, like, sewage flowing in the streets. Mm-hmm. It's as soon as you get waste gathering in a metropolitan area, you're mm-hmm. going to get pests surrounding yeah. it. You get, uh, especially around, like, a port city. It was really common around ports, obviously, because it was coming from the ocean. Mm, and I believe, I believe, I, I can't find where I read it specifically, but I also believe that there are some theories that uh, because of the movements into cities, it created like kind of deposed rat populations that would like hang out in like the wilds until it got, until like conditions kind of forced them into the city. Um, uh. And at that point they'd created, and this is kind of a factor that comes into plagues a lot, is it has to build over time. The, the actual plague vectors have to spread. It has to cr- spread amongst this population of rats before it can spread amongst the population of humans. And that's probably why, that's one of the main reasons that they think it's Yersinia pestis, knowing about how it works. Because, um, because it is such a, like an animal-born disease, 
Uh, and because it was multi-centuries and it was like years between outbreaks, they believe that probably one of the reasons was it was like building in this rat population for, say, six, ten something years. And then eventually it becomes so widespread that it then starts spreading out into the rest of the population. Mm. It becomes so common amongst these fleas and these rats and stuff that it's unavoidable. And at that point, you've got the plague. Yeah. Um, but so the main kind of like DNA evidence we have for it is there were some graves found in that dated to the Black Death. Uh, and they scraped, I believe they scraped the teeth in them. Uh, in some of the corpses, and they mm. found traces of Eusenia pestis. I do believe, though, that the only main connection to the Black Death specifically was then going back to the same site and testing it again, was how they, like, confirmed it. So it's a, so some people are like, I don't okay, know, so you might not have the, gotten a broad enough... Some of the science is a little bit sketchy. Yeah, some people say, there are, there are some scientists that say, well, yeah, they had Yersinia pestis in the region, and that makes sense because it would have come from those rats coming from the trade routes in Asia. But, but we don't know for sure that, it, that the plague was Yersinia pestis. Just someone had Yersinia pestis. Yeah, they just know it was, you know, some, somewhat in the same period at the same time, and it was they were both widespread. Yeah, people had it, but... The other kind of theories for it, uh, some people say that it could have been. I mean, actually, interestingly enough, anthrax is one of the one there of the um, a historian Norman Cantor wrote a book in two thousand and one that said that it could have been a combination of a few things, including a form of anthrax. Um, it's because uh, sometimes the symptoms didn't really keep with the uh, like buboes. And yeah. the like pneumonic symptoms specifically, and actually, yeah, because there is that that image of people coughing, which doesn't fit with the way it's transmitted. Yeah, which is where we talk about what the symptoms mean about the disease. Yeah, and they found some anthrax spores in like a plague pit in Scotland, um, uh. and it could have spread through meat. So, and there was a lot of like contaminated meat, potentially contaminated meat, kind of spreading around the region oh, at yeah. the time of the Black Death. It so is, it could have been. It is worth talking a little bit about the sociological factors that did mean you got such high death tolls for these diseases, specifically the Black Death, um, is that essentially the historical background in Europe at the time was they went through a really warm period where there were lots of crops and lots of work, and so people just started fucking and having lots of babies. Yeah. And then a while after that, there were lots of... Lots of people around, population had boomed and it got cold and suddenly it wasn't as easy to grow food, um, crops started to dwindle, populations started to starve, they would move into cities because it wasn't as viable to live further away and so you would get a bunch of immunocompromised starving masses in simil- in really close quarters and that meant it was really easy for a disease to hit you, uh, get transmitted and then kill you. Yeah. And that's where you get your 60% death toll. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, The kind of interesting thing about about the Yersinia pestis theory specifically is if it was the bubonic plague, it would have spread worse during the winter because obviously the animals were like less active, there was less of them. Um, Mm. It shouldn't have been as easy for it to spread around. 
Uh, and some people have pointed to that as a reason, like, well, it probably wasn't Yersinia pestis, which is where the idea of the bubonic and pneumonic plagues kind of comes from, or at least in part. And so potentially there's, there's the idea of confluent plagues. Mm, yeah, the theory that people's that people kind of say in terms of to like justify the the difficulty of it being just a bubonic plague because uh, the other big issue is it spread too quickly to be a bubonic plague well especially given the modes of transmission are mostly touch and pest yeah um yeah you you're going to get mostly like Ebola um, medical professionals fa- close family and close friends are going to be the ones that get infected yeah and that's not going to spread like wildfire that's going to be pretty slow so actually, I do buy into this theory that there was more, at least more than one disease going. Yeah, and especially because the more common, uh, the more common rat through Europe for most of the time of the Black Death, because uh, uh, actually the brown rat su- succeeded the black rat in Europe. It kind of like took over it. The black rat kind of became a lot less common after the brown rat was introduced to the region. And it is not nearly as able to spread the plague. Like, it can still carry it, but it doesn't like... Like, a black rat gets Yersinia pestis and a flea bites it, and that flea bites you, you have the bubonic plague. Mm. A black uh, flea does the same with a brown rat, and it's like, maybe, maybe. But Maybe. it also might be carrying antibodies and might yeah. just not take. So those are the thing. Those are the animals that were kind of more around. They had uh, like they were just more resistant to the disease. They there's a, they basically believe that they kind of had like herd immunity based on the way that these rats had evolved specifically. Yeah. Um, I mean, it it could well have been the common cold that killed a lot of people, and it was just that the most visible thing there was the bubonic plague, and so that got the blame. Yeah, uh, easily for sure. The main kind of justification for those difficulties is, yeah, that it was also pneumonic. The theory being that at some point you sent the bubos of something similar ended up in someone's lungs and then you're starting spreading through droplet contact. And yeah. once you start spreading through droplets, it becomes a lot easier to explain the uh, difficulties with uh, justifications according to season, the difficulties in mm. the rate of spread, Um but just to poke holes in the theory of that being Yersinia pestis, it's mostly remained unevolved, at least the, the, the strains that we currently have today. It's mostly unevolved since the 8th century. It's pretty much the same bacteria with the exception of any antibiotic resistance or resistance to various antibodies. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but, I mean, we do know that Yersinia pestis can become pneumonic. Like, that's something we know for sure. Mm. Um, it just... yeah, happen that, that quick and that, co- that often... Less believable. Yeah, and this is kind of what I really want to get down to because at the end of the day, nobody fucking cared if it was Yersinia pestis because that didn't mean anything to anyone. People were just dying. Yeah, all they knew was that one day things were fine and the next day everyone's fucking dead. Yeah, imagine in six months from now, 60% of the people you know are dead. That's insane. In fact, assuming that the people listening to this podcast are not in the upper classes, um, probably more of the people you know are dead. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing because we're dealing with mostly like kind of poorer populations as well. Yeah. So 60% population death actually means 80 to 90% poor population death. 
Yeah, I think there's a oh, there's a story. There is a there is a fun story. I think about I think the Red Death. A real fun story. Uh, in no, it is fun because it it turns on them. There, there's this story uh, dur- set during I think the Red Death, which I believe was a similar plague through uh, went through Italy. Okay. Uh, I I might be wrong there. That might not even be a thing. Uh, just a a mnemonic plague of some sort mm. was was tearing through the city, and these like rich people had like locked themselves in their oh, I have heard of in this. this like castle, and they were like, "Oh, we're safe. The the, the filthy peasants can't make us sick." And then <laughs> like someone brought it into the castle, and everyone outside was fine, and all the rich people died. Um. So I'm just having a look here. Yeah, the Mask of the Red Death. Yeah. It's a story, I think. It is a short story by Edgar Allan Poe. It's, it's not a real disease. Oh. It's, a, it's also a fictional disease in Osmosis Jones. Oh. Uh, and a fictional dragon in the film How to Train Your Dragon. I can't believe I was pranked by Osmosis Jones. It also is a campaign setting in Dungeons & Dragons uh, in the Ravenloft setting. Ooh, and Ravenloft is cool as hell. And it's, base, it's very loosely based upon the Edgar Allan Poe story. Yeah, that um, that's super fitting for Ravenloft, actually. Anyone who, for anyone who doesn't know, Ravenloft is basically like D&D's like Dracula setting. Yeah, it's it's where Strahd came from, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the people in, like, the places that the Black Death was hitting didn't even know what disease was. And I think that's really important to remember. They didn't have any idea what was going on. This was at a point where doctors looked at the plague and said, good luck. The best response that the medical profession had to the plague was plague masks. Yeah, which is just, it, you know, potpourri, right? Where you get a bunch of flower petals and spices and potpourri stuff. Potpourri literally just means like random shit that smells nice. Yeah, and it's literally, they thought that by stuffing potpourri into a face mask, putting it on you, because you couldn't smell the plague, you couldn't get the plague. Yeah, because that's the thing. You have to remember, and if you listen to the sewers episode we put up recently, you would know about the great stink. Mm. This is a time where Europe smells like shit. Literally. It smells like shit. So if you're walking around every day and you smell something that makes you gag whenever you walk out into the street and then suddenly everyone starts getting sick, pretty obvious explanation is... The smells do it. Bad air. Yeah. That's where miasma theory kind of came into play. And yeah, they thought, they really just thought that if you couldn't smell the bad air, if you made the air pure, then you wouldn't get sick. So these plague doctors would go up to people with this highly contagious disease touch and just them, not touch wash them, their hands. breathe all over them, uh, do all sorts of shit, and just think that if they used a stick and it, they couldn't smell it, it would be fine. It's actually believed that plague doctors were one of the best vectors for the Black Death. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's. Not surprising in any way, shape, or form. I think one of the biggest vectors for disease in hot modern hospitals is the white coats doctors wear because they don't wash them. Hmm. There you go. Uh, and it was, well, originally, it was a point of pride to have as much blood as possible on your yeah. white coat. Yeah. So they were very, very dangerous. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of that thing. We didn't really know for a long time. So uh, people thought, obviously, beyond miasma theory, which was the kind of medical profession's take on the thing, most people kind of thought it was a curse from God. I mean, that's what they knew plagues as. Yeah. A plague was a punishment from God for the sins of the community. I mean, this is in the age where everything was a punishment from God. So, you know, take with that what you will. Yeah, that's true. 
So that that manifests in a few ways. Some people turn to like mysticism. Some people turn to art. Some people turn to whatever. Some people turn to flagellation. And I we get, remember you telling me about this. Yeah, we get the flagellants. And they're some funny fellas. And basically, they would walk through the streets. They were religious zealots in the Middle Ages. They, it originally started, I think, as a pilgrimage. And it was literally self-flagellation. They mm. had uh, like this three-tailed whip, um, sometimes with like knots and stuff at the end, I think. And they would just walk through the streets and whip themselves. Um, as the plague really started to take off kind of in the in 1349 is when this source I have is, is dated to, uh, it would be like every day you would have in some places uh, people walking through the streets, whipping, whipping themselves. themselves and like praying and talking for hours. Uh, they would march in single file naked and whip. Oh, they would. I think they also whipped each other. Mm. So what they would do is they would like walk through the streets, whipping themselves. They would get to where they were going lie down on the ground, and the people behind them would walk over them. It's like that scene from Spongebob where they crawl through the tunnel in everyone's legs to spank them. It's like it, that. They that would, with whips. They would walk over everyone and just give everyone a whip. And once, they'd, once everyone had whipped everyone and they'd done their march through the streets, they all just went home. And then the next day, you're out whipping again. Yep. So that is just a thing that, is, that just happened You reckon they time. didn't get sick as much and they kept doing it because they were constantly naked and if one person got buboes then it was very obvious oh yeah you you would know immediately plus you would probably be keeping yourself a lot cleaner if you had all those open wounds on your back that's true you'd be washing more often yeah i mean we didn't know a lot about it at the time but uh there was some cognizance of like using like uh strong forms of alcohol or water in some cases. It's probably not actually a good idea in the Middle Ages. That water's probably infected as shit. Yeah, alcohol is the best way to do it. Uh, but, like, that was the thing that people did for a very long time. It's kind of an intuitive understanding. Uh, when, when was soap developed? Oh, I don't actually know. I know I, I have some recollection of lime being used to treat wounds, um, which must have hurt like a bitch. I'll do some quick fact-checking on, on my statement there Okay. Um, right now, actually. Um, an interesting account of the plague comes from a book, an Italian book called The Betrothed, published in 1827. It's actually uh, by, Aliz- it's by Alessandro Manzoni, um, and it is uh, often cited as the most widely read book in the Italian language. There is, and, and the whole book's just about the Black Death. Uh, it's obviously written a few hundred years later. Um, but there's a few kind of interesting passages from it. Uh, I'm, so I'm just going to read this one here. Mm. Uh, it's from chapter 32. A subtle, instantaneous, most penetrating poison. Such were the words that were found sufficient to explain the violence of the disease and all its obscure and most extraordinary symptoms. Said to have been made from toads, from snakes, from the spittle and pus of the victims of the plague, and yet worse ingredients. With the addition of black magic, anything became possible. An anointer. Soon the word became common, a resounding word, a word of terror. Everyone was on the lookout. Every act could inspire suspicion. Suspicion soon turned to certainty, and certainty to fury. In the Church of St. Anthony in Milan, on a feast of 
day of some kind, a man more than 80 years old knelt down to say his prayers, and when he'd finished and wanted to sit back on the bench, he dusted it with his cape. The old man is, is anointing the benches, cried several women with one voice. All the people in church, in church, I repeat, dashed at the old man, seized him by the hair, white as it was, and loaded him with blows and kicks. Some pushing, some pulling, they, hust- they hustled him to the door. If they spared his life for the moment, it was only so that they could drag him in that battered state to prison, to judgment, to torture. I saw, the- I saw him as they dragged him along the street, says Rap- Rippermonti, who I imagine is a character in the book, and heard no more about him afterwards. I don't think that he can, he can have lived more, more than a few moments longer after I lost sight of him. And then it goes on to talk about how uh, that was also not uncommon. It was that, uh, the passage here is, the madness propagated itself as fast as the plague. Wow. And it was just like this terrible fear of anything that could possibly be doing it. So obviously there was like that, yeah, that idea of like anointers, of people using black magic or using disease or using contaminated whatever to spread the plague around. Mm. Uh, There was also a very terrible, uh, really awful theory that it was Jewish people that were responsible. Every time, every time there's a fucking plague, it's always somehow linked with a minority community. Oh yeah. And just, and, and, Unfortunately, Jewish communities throughout history have just been displaced so often that they're always the minority community when bad things happen somewhere because they're just the minority community everywhere. Yeah, apparently uh, during the Black Death in Europe, as it was getting a lot worse, uh, they started burning Jewish communities at stake en masse. Oh, God. Because they thought that, because people thought that, or told people that they thought that that was the cause. And I'm sure you'd probably see Romani populations as a large part of that. Almost definitely. Um, God. Um, just on a slightly lighter note, um, for the use of lime as a disinfectant, it, I can't see anything here on just base level research. It, it was hard to dis, to distinguish um, lime as in limestone, like so agricultural lime, and mm. lime as in the citrus. But what I've found is that it is used as a disinfectant in, in livestock, um, oh. basically because it changes the pH and dries up the, the wound so that it's very hostile to bacteria. And basically that means it's not likely to boil up. It's not likely to get infected. Um, so, yeah, it, lime can be used to treat wounds. I'm sure it's fucking painful. Oh, yeah. Um, but it is, it is a possibility. Yeah, yeah, that's all. that's a terrible to think about. Uh, but I guess if you've got the Black Death, you've got a lot of terrible things to think about. Yep. Um, another thing that people often thought was obviously that was kind of demonic, and that led to a lot of suspicion of cats, which led to culling of cat populations, which, uh, if it was Yersinia pestis, actually worked against them. Because it didn't... It meant there was less... There were more rats because rat there populations less... thrived because they. It was oh. like thousands of cats. It was like every cat they saw was like the cat did the plague because it's bad luck. And also, a bunch of cat bodies around means there's lots for rats to eat. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it's just wild. People just kind of thought it was anything, anything that you were scared of. It 
would be that. It would just be that because nobody knew any better. And the other really important thing to remember is that this is a time where people don't really get to read very often. Mm. People don't know a lot about their own history. So, like, yeah, the Black Death sweeps through Europe in 1348 and then sweeps through again in the 1500s. Mm. People in the 1500s don't know about 1348. All they know is everyone's dead now. So it's... This, the people that do know, know that it's coming back again and again and again. And the people that don't, don't even have that to hold on to. Literally no certainty about anything that's happening. In fact, the uh, economic decline throughout the middle of the 1500s, they, uh, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, probably shouldn't be attributed to the Black Death itself, but should be attributed to the recurrence of the Black Death. Oh, just the fact that it kept coming. It kept coming back and kept decimating populations. The population uh, that was that had before 1348, the uh, population of Europe, mm-hmm. probably uh, Western Europe, sorry, uh, didn't... It, it killed so many people that they didn't reach that population level again until the 16th century. Again, wow. 1500s. So this like this period of just like increasingly destitute conditions of increasing economic decline, it's probably at least in some part to do with this plague that just keeps coming every couple of generations, just wipes out everyone. And that is wild. The thing that you've got to remember is it wipes out the most altruistic first, just like Ebola. Yeah. The people who it die medical are the medical professionals. Yep. People who die are the people who wanted to help. Yeah, it's, it's family, it's friends, it's medical professionals. And and then you're left with a society of people who are disenfranchised and afraid and cynical and angry and a ruling class who any single one of them that gave a shit about anyone is dead. Yep. You've only got the worst of them left. You've got this population that's that really terrified. That explain a lot of things. <laughs> and a royalty that couldn't have cared or they'd be dead. That really explains so much about the Middle Ages. Yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, the, econ- the economy of Siena specifically, uh, which I believe is in Italy, yes. was destroyed. They were creating a massive cathedral. Uh, around, I believe, the 1300s, there was a there was a school that was being built. It was like the hub of great thinkers, and it was they all died. Jesus, the cathedral was abandoned. The school never came to be. It was just done. Like that. That's the period we're talking about. A, a thousand towns disappeared off the map, gone because their populations were dead. And like, sure, a lot of people in the countryside weren't affected, but the ones that were, their town was gone. Mm. That was it. And their whole that, culture, their whole history. And on that thoroughly depressing note, um, we're going to have a little think about how you can bring some plague to your world. Yeah. Uh, and then we will be right back. And if you're not depressed now, you will be soon. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody who is listening and fuck you, everyone who isn't. They're not going to hear They're it. They're not going to hear it. It's fine. So, uh, okay. Word of warning. This one's a bummer. Yeah. But we're talking about plagues. You knew that. You knew this was going to be a bummer. So, 
uh, I think the most interesting, we're talking about it, we think the most interesting way to kind of include these plagues into your campaign, first of all, you can't tell your players it's a plague. No. Never tell them anything scientific or factual about it because nobody knows anything about it. Yeah, that's the thing. Unless they have specifically been working in the field of disease, they're probably not going to know much about disease. And quite frankly, if you're doing it as a more realistic setting, which, like, maybe you're not, and maybe you've got, like, medicine and stuff, but if you're doing it as a more realistic setting, probably no one's working in the field of disease. Nobody would think to. Nobody knows what disease is. Uh, Again, still seems like a curse. Yep. And building off of that, so this would probably work best if you're doing kind of like a grimdark setting, uh, maybe like a horror setting even. Hmm. Um, it's going to fit probably best into a low low magic setting where it's less likely that a cleric's just going to come out with cure disease or purify food and water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely somewhere where that feels more like our world. And you'll probably want to have, probably actually thinking about it, want to have... Uh, gods of some variety that are less tangible as well for this. Yeah, There is a really good uh, setting coming out, an Australian-based setting. Uh, so an Australian, ba- an Australian company that has come out with a setting that is releasing in March called Grim Hollow. Um, it's by Darkfire Gaming. Uh, absolutely worth checking them out. They're in early playtesting, but part of what they promise in their setting is um, some of this stuff, plagues and their effects and the different things that happen in society surrounding it. Yeah. So, uh, basically, you've got this, like, low-level party that comes into... Maybe they've been going... They've done their, like, goblin fighting, the things that you do with your first-level party. Mm. And they've... Maybe they're, like, level three now. And they finally get to their first, like, hub. And they're really excited because, like, this is just a town. This is just a place. It's a place. It's a city. And... I can finally buy some leather armor. And you come into the city and the streets are empty. There's maybe a chiming bell in the distance ominously. Maybe you hear the sounds of whip cracks from some flagellants walking a few streets down. Mm. And then you go into the inn and you find there's the innkeeper who looks so worn out and there's sick people just like in beds all around and you talk to them and you try to find out what's happening and you discover that there's this this curse has come down on the city they have this like Machiavellian prince who's been rolling back all of the societal protections for the lower classes. It's like a, a very pious community, mm. someone who, uh, a community who really truly believes in the religious good of charity, the religious good of kindness and sharing. And so their society has been built around this. And then this prince comes into power and using the absolute power of the monarchy because absolute power always leaves options to roll back reforms mm-hmm. i mean re- really any reformist system leaves options to roll back reforms this is why we need revolution but anyway the prince has managed to create a society that looks like it is cursed for its religious misdeeds because they've gotten rid of all these religious protections these like kind of religious rules but it's actually just created terrible conditions for the poor they're all hmm. stuck together in a handful of places, maybe in like debtors' prisons and poor houses and like and a handful of slums and apartment blocks and homeless otherwise. Yeah. And there's no sanitation, even in the sense that there was before. Because it's like, yeah, people didn't know to purify water fully because they didn't know what that meant. But we always knew that like cleaner water tastes better. Hmm. Cleaner things are nicer. Being not covered in shit is 
better. Generally good. you don't want that. But then you create a society where maybe you don't have an option to bathe. You don't have the option to drink clean water. You don't have the option to eat clean food. And so people are eating carrion and roadkill. People are living in the streets and in enclosed areas. And this plague is just spreading. And everyone is so sick and so scared. The society is on the brink of collapse. And you've got this like... Edgar Allan Poe-esque elite up on their hail in the castle, just like laughing it all the way. And so your party decides, okay, this is a curse from the gods. This is what they'd been told. This is all anyone knew. And so they go and they fix it. They overthrow the prince. Democracy Perfect. finally exists. This beautiful self-governing uh, agricultural community things should be okay. And they come back out and maybe people are still kind of sick and they're like, okay, but these things take time. They come back a couple of weeks later and the town's gone. Empty buildings, corpses, dead rats in the street because plagues don't care. You give them antibiotics or they die. And I don't know. I I just think it would really, if you want to have a serious dark campaign... Hell of a way to set the tone. Yep. Lie to your party and kill a town. <laughs> it takes a village. Um, and I just think it's like, it would really play off of this, because you have to remember, if you've listened to these episode, to all of the episodes of our podcast so far, you know a lot about history, at least hmm. in the broad strokes. They don't. These people can't know that. They yeah. physically cannot know that. There's no way for them to know that. It's not until we have hundreds of years of hindsight to help us and actual access to information that you could. And so this really sets the world up as yeah. alive and a world that doesn't care what your players do. It just cares what's happening. Another really important thing that I w- that is to bring this knowledge into your campaigns, into your settings, into your stories, is that really the knowledge that we're bringing you now is only as useful as the way it serves the story Mm. or the way it serves the tone. Yeah. And there is no better way to set the tone of a game than with disease. You can decide whether you do something silly like the dancing plague or cackle fever, or you could decide to set the tone by killing a town with a plague that they thought was a curse. Hell, it could be a dancing fever that kills the town. If you want to split the difference. Yeah, it, it, that definitely does split the difference because you can't help but laugh, but also it's just like twinge of guilt. Yeah. Anyway, that's been us for another week. Thank you so much for listening to these episodes that are getting longer and longer the less people that we have. <laughs> um, uh, tweet, tweet at us at uh, Dungeon Deep Dive or email us at Deep Dive TNC. Uh, we're also on Instagram and Facebook at Dungeon Deep Dive. Yeah, if and you want to just take a photo right now of where you were when we thoroughly depressed you with the plague, <laughs> um, just take a photo, tag it at Dungeon Deep Dive and um, we'll respond and tell you to harden up. Um, if you want to send an email that says, hey, please stop making longer episodes if longer episodes are just going to get sadder, um, I will I will read it. Uh, I won't st- stop because uh, my dark desires will never be sated. But I will read and respond. <laughs> DeepDiveTNC at gmail.com. Thank you very much. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Don't get the plague. It'd be bad. Probably. Thank you.
humanity spent millennia upon millennia seeking answers to their questions through bizarre and occult methods that left them in the dark as ever. Now, in this golden age of knowledge, people no longer have to look at, frankly, incomprehensible omens, but rather make rational decisions based on peer review research and the scientific method. That being said, large swathes of people aren't doing that anymore. And here at Imogen Harrison Predict the Future, we've decided to lean in. People just like you email in questions like, Should I break up with my loving partner? Should I make a major career change? I feel like I can constantly hear a heartbeat underneath my floorboards. What's up with that? And comedian Imogen. And writer Harrison. We'll look at some tea leaves or the moon or whatever and we'll tell you what to do. And you'll do it. Without question. Imogen and Harrison predict the future. We We have have a vision. vision. You'll You'll love love it. it. It's random dungeons, healing spells. Safety seas adjusted as Here we are. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.